COVID clarification. The purpose of these orders is to break those chains of transmission. Answers to your questions about new regulations. Local innovation helping deliver a vaccine. This, this is truly great news. The Vancouver company sharing in Pfizer's success. And the latest on the first snowfall warning of the season. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. Provincial health officials are addressing the many questions and confusion tonight over BC's latest COVID-19 restrictions. It comes as we see nearly a thousand new cases in the last 48 hours. Two days worth of numbers resulting in 998 new cases for a total now of 18,714 cases in BC. Sadly, we have had five more deaths, which means we have now lost 281 people to complications of the virus. 133 people are in hospital. That's up 29, 43 in the ICU. CU up 15. 13,425 people are considered recovered, leaving us with 4,891 active cases and 9,179 in isolation. So with that reality, BC's top doctor is today trying to clarify the province's new round of COVID-19 regulations. The rules were put in place Saturday for the Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health Authorities. But as Richard Zussman reports, there's still some frustration about what is and is not allowed. Order confusion? There are lots of questions like this and there always are when new orders come in. To order clarification. I ask for people to be patient with each other and patient with government as well. Since the sweeping measures came into effect in Metro Vancouver over the weekend, there have been a lot of questions. Many of them centered around whether you can have those gatherings outdoors, on your back deck, socially distanced. The answer is no. We are seeing that that is a situation where this virus is taking advantage and is being transmitted. So don't have your backyard barbecue. And on restaurants, still some confusion. You can only go with your family. And if you don't visit with your family at all, you could pick a few people to act as your pandemic bubble. Go to your restaurant, go to your pub, enjoy yourself. Hang out with people that you trust. Right now, we need to make sure that we're doing it with our group of people. It's not up to the restaurant to police this. It's up to us to police this. It's indoor fitness areas where there's growing frustration. The province acknowledging the current rules aren't good enough and are making operators from spin to yoga to dance redo their plans. This is something that has arisen. We thought we had adequate protocols in place and this is not a reflection on those businesses. I'm kind of left scrambling today trying to find information on what is actually required for a safe reopening. The dance community is starting a petition with thousands of signatures already to open studios back up now. We as studio owners and young dancers and their parents everywhere feel that we have been unjustly targeted. Then there's organized sports. No games for contact indoor sports, but practice is okay. Outdoor sports can still be played, but you're not allowed to travel across city boundaries to play games. And there's no gathering on the sidelines. And sports like curling and swimming are okay indoors, but participants must follow current COVID protocols. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's bring in Keith Baldry for more on this. Hopefully today provided some clarity for Keith, who spent the last couple of days pretty confused. Uh, mm -hmm. But what about the rule breakers? Who will be enforcing this? How will they enforce <coughs> these rules? 
You know, there's been enforcement all along since uh, previous health orders came into effect, but the resources are going to be stepped up here because the stakes are so high. The numbers are just so staggering now compared to where they were just a few weeks ago. Dr. Bonnie Henry today walking us through how many different people in public service are going to be basically seconded to make sure no one's breaking the rules at a time when it's most critical. Yes, we have bylaw officers, we have police officers, um, public safety officers, we have some provincial inspectors, as well as our public health inspectors and WorkSafe BC inspectors, who are all able to enforce these orders, um, depending on what they are. And yes, we will be having enhanced reviews and stepping up and enforcement if needed um, from public health and WorkSafe and bylaw officers for restaurants, for businesses. We want people and we need people to pay attention to these things. Now, we've had plenty of instances in the past through this pandemic, uh, Sophie, over with people reporting uh, lawbreakers, rule breakers to authorities. And there have been fines handed out as much as $2,300. I think there's going to be more fines because clearly some people are going to try to find loopholes here to avoid these new rules for the next two weeks. And as a reminder, why Fraser Health is really the, the problem here. I just crunched the numbers of the cases reported today. 83% of them are in Fraser Health. That's been a story for some weeks. It's actually getting worse in Fraser Health than better. And hopefully, uh, those numbers improve over the next two weeks. And if they don't improve, Dr. Henry said today, she would be open to extending that two-week rule for an indefinite period if the numbers don't go down. All right, everyone, smarten up. Thanks, Keith. Mm -hmm. right. Excellent advice. Now, across Canada, COVID-19 cases are spiking in many provinces. In Alberta, a growing number of doctors are expressing concerns over their government's response to the surging numbers. Aaron MacArthur has a look across the country. As people cling desperately to what passes for normal these days, the pandemic is raging. Healthcare providers are sounding the alarm. In Alberta, 70 doctors demanding a two-week sharp lockdown. I'm actually concerned that even the best case scenario involves a real strain on the healthcare system. And failure to get things under control quickly could really magnify that. Monday brought more than 600 new cases to Alberta. Nearly 1,300 in Ontario, 1,400 in Quebec. Even small provinces like Manitoba are seeing triple-digit increases in case counts. We're at a, at a critical point uh, where we need to change these dynamics. And while the number of cases climbs, politicians are seemingly reluctant to hit the pause button. We're the lowest in North America in any jurisdiction, so as much as we're seeing the numbers go up, uh, we, we still have the, the lowest numbers for any large jurisdiction. Promising vaccine news has come as welcome relief to the nation, but the Prime Minister says that is not the solution. Canadians still have to navigate the next several months. And to be very clear, if you catch COVID in the coming days and weeks, a vaccine won't help you or your family. So far this year, more than a quarter of a million Canadians have been infected with COVID-19. More than 10,000 people have died. Numbers dramatically higher than the height of the first wave in the spring. And yet no jurisdiction willing to impose the measures many people feel are needed to keep a lid on the pandemic. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. And it's the news the whole world has been waiting for. U.S. pharmaceutical giant Pfizer is reporting an astounding 90% success rate in the first round of COVID trials. 
using nanotechnology developed by a Vancouver company. But as Ted Chernecki reports, despite the unprecedented pace of development, there are still some significant hurdles ahead, meaning it will still be many months or even a year or more until the vaccine is widely available. It could be the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel, and that light isn't just another train heading our way. This one is the first real hope that a vaccine is coming. I believe this is likely the most significant medical advance in the last 100 years. American-based Pfizer and German company BioNTech are claiming a 90% effectiveness in preliminary data. Obviously, I'm still waiting to see what the actual data are from the study. All we have right now is the press release from Pfizer. That being said, um, the fact that 90% effectiveness was shown um, is pretty striking. Already there are questions about the timing of the announcement just one week after the U.S. federal election. I don't think there's, there's any um, manipulation in terms of when the, the, the results were released. We always knew that uh, uh, once an interim analysis uh, was available, it would be communicated. Thomas Madden is the CEO of a UBC company that played a big role in developing the vaccine. Acuitous Therapeutics found a way to protect a needed protein as it makes its way into the body's cells. The mRNA is shown in yellow. It interacts with ribosomes shown in green. If approved, every country in the world will want it. And some countries, including Canada, have pre-ordered from Pfizer. But where we stand in the waiting list is unclear. But assuming it does come in the new year... There are frameworks as to decide who gets it first within Canada, namely vulnerable people and healthcare workers, for example. And that process will take some time. And so I'm not going to give an exact timeline, but uh, hopefully in the near to mid-term future. Pfizer says it can produce 1.3 billion doses in 2021, meaning many in the world will be looking elsewhere for other vaccines, of which there are more than 160 in clinical trials. Also, Pfizer's vaccine needs to be stored at minus 70 degrees Celsius, which could further slow distribution. Ted Schernecke, Global News. Pfizer's announcement had a major and immediate impact on the stock market. The big winners are businesses that rely on people leaving their homes and gathering in groups. Shares in Cineplex were up 32 percent, Air Canada 29 percent, and Norwegian Cruise Lines up 27 percent. Companies built on at-home activities suffered after the vaccine announcement. Exercise by company Peloton was off 20%, Zoom dropped 18%, and Netflix lost 9% of its market value. Renters in the province are getting a bit more relief as the province extends the freeze on rent hikes. The original ban put in place under the Emergency Program Act and the COVID-19 Related Measures Act was set to expire next month. The province is now extending the freeze until July the 10th to give renters more security during the pandemic. Any pending rent increase up until that date is cancelled. The IKEA store in Coquitlam is being shut down while the company deals with a COVID-19 case on site. IKEA Canada says it's a precautionary measure after an employee tested positive for the virus. The entire site, including the warehouse, will be cleaned and sanitized by a third-party service to ensure safety. Customers are asked to check the store website for a reopening date. The Lower Mainland is under the first snowfall warning of the season, and it's falling exactly where it should in some areas. Our Grace Key is live on Cypress Mountain right now, where it's been coming down since this morning, Grace. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's uh, kind of a light dusting right now, though the wind is kind of picking up and it, it certainly is cold. Uh, when we were here about an hour ago, it was uh, snowing a little heavier. When I talked to the folks here at Cyprus earlier today, they said it probably started coming down at about 10 o'clock this morning. So it's definitely accumulating here behind me. In fact, just on our uh, way up here, the roads uh, certainly were covered with snow. They had some of the plows out that were uh, clearing up some of the road area as well. So we did ask, of course, the folks here when they think they're going to be back open. They say it's still just too early to say whether uh, when they can give us a proper timeline. They do have, uh, they have been uh, making snow up here, so they said they need still another few days more of that and they can hopefully give us a little bit of a better determination when they can start opening things up. Of course, it's usually happening around mid-November or so, but, you know, we did see some few people making their way up here. We spoke to a few of them. They said they loved it. Uh, they they were just out here enjoying the snow with their kids and they said the best thing about coming up here is that you don't have to social distancing. You got the place to yourself up there it looks like. Yeah. Grace, enjoy a hot chocolate when this <laughs> is over. Thanks a All lot. Right, thanks. <laughs> All right, senior meteorologist Christy Gordon is here now with more on the timeline into tomorrow. And how unusual is this for this point in November, Christy? Not exceptionally unusual, that's for sure. We do get snow in November. Now, the main event is going to be over higher elevations, and we're starting to see that in higher elevations of West Vancouver and Burnaby Mountain now, where we're at about one degree. Now, we do have a snowfall warning, though, in place for the North Shore and Northeast Metro Vancouver, but it's mainly over a higher elevation region. So when we look at the region, we could see anywhere from zero to 10 centimeters of snow in those regions. Wide range, as we always get in Metro Vancouver, and for the areas in gray, anywhere from zero to five centimeters of snow. And the main event will happen this evening. It will ease off by morning hours. So your commute to work should just be a bit of leftover slush and that's it. You see company that just became the first to get a license to do it legally. That's later. Right now, though, a hearing is underway in B.C. Supreme Court to determine whether the man convicted of fatally stabbing an Abbotsford teen four years ago should be found not criminally responsible due to a mental disorder. In March, Gabriel Klein was found guilty of second-degree murder in the 2016 death of 13-year-old Letitia Reimer at her Abbotsford High School. The 25-year-old was also found guilty of the aggravated assault of her friend. Now, Klein's lawyers are arguing he was not criminally responsible for the stabbings due to mental illness. It's very trying. We were just after the anniversary of Letitia's murder of four years ago on November 1st, and now we're spending time in a hearing. And the victims get forgotten in these things. No matter what happens here, this is just another case of the criminal justice system not looking after victims and re-victimizing them. Vancouver police are redeploying officers to tackle street disorder after a survey they commissioned revealed most city residents are concerned about crime. As Rumina Dea reports, the move comes after yet another scary incident in Yaletown where homeowners are fed up with the lawlessness. Got you on video, and if I find you around here again, you're going to be gone. This is what Jane, a Vancouver grandmother, encountered when she stepped onto her patio in Yaletown. Two strangers passed out on lounge chairs. I was terrified. I was shaking like a leaf. And I immediately went inside, locked the doors. I phoned 911, 
and told them what was happening. We've agreed to protect Jane's identity because she's concerned for her safety. What I'm worried about is public safety. Deputy Police Chief Howard Chow says a new survey commissioned by Vancouver Police found 78% of respondents are concerned about crime in the city. 61% feel crime has gotten worse over the past year. Police responding to calls every two minutes, over 700 a day. Our police dispatch. So they'll triage the calls, we'll go to the most serious, and where that's frustrating for some people is the lower end calls, lower priority calls, uh, takes a while for us to get to. Um, At any given point, we may have 40, 50, up to 100 calls that are holding, waiting for police response. Calls like these, taking hours. Knife pulled on construction worker, building manager punched in the head, and extortion for nude photos. Police now launching a new neighborhood response team to deal with lower priority calls like disturbances, mischief, and trespassing. Get off my property. Mayor Kennedy Stewart too busy with meetings to do an on-camera interview. I'm sick and tired of it. I'd like to know his address and send them over to his backyard, quite frankly. After 14 years in the home and city she treasures, Jane is now looking at moving. Get lost. Get out of here. Romina Dea, Global News. The uptick in COVID cases around the province includes B.C. schools. In the Okanagan, Interior Health has announced more cases of the virus at schools across Kelowna and West Kelowna. As Claudia Van Emmerich reports, public health officials are urging all community members to do their part to ensure schools can stay open during this second wave. As lunch hour got underway at Kelowna Secondary School Monday, many students were taking their break, donning masks. KSS is among the growing number of central Okanagan schools where COVID cases have been announced. I trust the school system to take pull us out when they need to if they think that's what it needs to come to. Over the weekend, Interior Health announced four more cases of COVID-19 at KSS, bringing the total to seven. While some students are not overly concerned... As long as everybody like does what they're supposed to and wears their masks and stays distant. For others, the worry is growing. It's scary. My mom's high risk, so I kind of get nervous at school. I think it should transition online. I just, I don't know. I don't think it's worth being here during COVID when we can just do online school again. There are currently eight schools in the central Okanagan where cases and exposures have been identified. They include Kelowna Secondary with seven cases, as well as Okanagan Mission Secondary where two cases have been confirmed. And single cases have been reported at Spring Valley Elementary, KLO Middle School, and most recently Dr. Knox Middle School, as well as Rose Valley and Glen Rosa Elementary schools. There have also been two positive cases at St. Joseph Catholic Private School. The Central Okanagan School District says it's unrealistic for COVID not to affect schools and that cases were expected. But it says that the increase in exposure events is due to the spread within the community at large and that it can only be curbed with the responsible behavior by all of us. I would again encourage the community to follow Bonnie, Dr. Bonnie Henry's advice and, and uh, Let's try and get our numbers down in the community, and then, of course, we'll, we'll see those exposures in schools drop, too. Dr. Bonnie Henry addressing the issue at her regular Monday briefing, saying despite increasing cases at schools, safety measures are making a difference. But we see very little transmission in schools. So that tells us that the layers that we have in place in schools are working. And that um, so right now, what we need to do is focus on reducing transmission in the community 
to protect the important aspects of schools. Back at KSS, many say the school is doing what it can. Our school is doing a really good job inside of it, uh, keeping that contained. But the community also plays a big part. Claudia Venemer, Global News, Kelowna. Well, word of that possible vaccine breakthrough comes as the second wave of COVID infections is starting to gather steam, not only across Canada, but around much of the world. As Sarah McDonald reports from many parts of Asia and across Europe, case numbers are rapidly climbing, while in the U.S., new records are being set almost every day. The COVID-19 case count is exploding again, not only across Canada. But around the world, in Europe, eerily familiar scenes are now resurfacing. Italy, the first country to impose a nationwide lockdown in March, is on the brink of seeing its healthcare system overloaded and overwhelmed. Nine months on. Out of 30 ICU beds, we are down to our last four, says this doctor working on the front lines, who fears this next wave will be even more devastating than the first, even with strict new public health measures put in place. I'm worried it's exploding again, he says. The body count is going to climb. This group will advise on detailed plans built on a bedrock of science. As the United States surpassed 10 million infections nationwide on Monday, President-elect Joe Biden announced a new task force to tackle the coronavirus crisis, which has already claimed nearly 240,000 American lives and counting. <laughs> Meantime, in Asia, mass testing and strict lockdowns have seen countries like China, Thailand and Singapore largely keep COVID-19 contained for now. The question is, for how long, as the world holds its breath and hinges its hopes on a possible vaccine? Sarah McDonald, Global News. Up next, the transfer of power in the U.S. We could save tens of thousands of lives if everyone would just wear a mask. Joe Biden gets busy tackling COVID while Donald Trump fights the results. And suspicions about dirty money that went ignored at B.C. casinos. More drama from the Cullen Commission today coming up. On this Monday night, fresh optimism in the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. The potential new shot in the arm. We need to stay strong and hang in there a few more months. Why it could be significant and what's still unknown. COVID-19 cases are climbing across Canada. The calls for tougher crackdowns and lockdowns and the confusing messaging in Ontario and B.C. Joe Biden's pandemic plea. It doesn't matter who you voted for. We could save tens of thousands of lives. What the next commander in chief wants all Americans to start doing now. And a father's grief. The tragic twist in a Canadian veteran's mission to find his son's final resting place. Global National with Donna Friesen. Good evening and thanks for joining us. I am not in the studio at the moment because I've just returned from covering the presidential election in the U.S. and I'm quarantining for the next two weeks. So there is no crew with me and the set looks a bit rudimentary, but we're going to carry on with the news. And we begin tonight with what could be a first step out of all the restrictions we are living under. A vaccine developed by the companies Pfizer and BioNTech has shown early promise. Preliminary results 
show it is more than 90% effective at protecting people from COVID-19. Experts do caution the human clinical trials are still underway and more data is needed. But today's news is fueling hopes a coronavirus vaccine could be within reach. We see the light at the end of the tunnel. We are hopeful we are getting there because our scientists are working incredibly hard. U.S. President-elect Joe Biden is getting down to business, meeting with his COVID-19 task force and urging everyone to wear a mask to help combat the spread of the virus. Global's Reggie Giacchini has more on Biden's coronavirus team and why Donald Trump's refusal to concede could impact how much work Biden can accomplish in the weeks ahead. As a battered nation struggles to deal with a growing crisis, President-elect Joe Biden is countering the current coronavirus task force with one of his own. This group will advise on detailed plans built on a bedrock of science. As the death toll nears 240,000, President Trump has been criticized for not putting national policies in place. Biden says his advisory committee will look at a mask mandate, bringing local and state leaders into the conversation. We could save tens of thousands of lives if everyone would just wear a mask. As Biden attempts to put a stronghold on the coronavirus, there are fears of another White House super spreader event. Two key administration officials have tested positive after attending Trump's post-election appearance. COVID, COVID, COVID. COVID COVID-19 became a flashpoint during the election with the candidates having wildly different approaches. Drowning the turn. Donald Trump brushing it aside, claiming it was dissipating, while Joe Biden urged caution. Now, Biden's attempts to get his COVID response in order are facing resistance, with Trump refusing to concede. There is a lot to be said for having at least some time for the incoming administration to familiarize itself with what's really going on in the world uh, and to begin to make the decisions that can allow it to govern effectively from the first day it officially takes power. The Trump campaign is still looking into legal options, trafficking the president's conspiracies of fraud without evidence. There are going to be double voters. There are going to be people who shouldn't, did not have the qualifications of a registered voter to vote in this state. That will be found. Is it 10,353? Unlikely. And as President Trump refuses to concede, there's reports that he's mulling a run in 2024, which would make him a formidable candidate in the primary challenges. Donald Trump filed his papers to run in 2020, the day he was inaugurated in 2017. Reggie Cicchini, Global News, Washington. More astonishing testimony today at the Cullen Commission into money laundering in B.C. Yet another former investigator tells the commission his warnings about huge amounts of suspicious cash flowing through casinos fell on deaf ears. John Waugh reports. The high rollers would come in and lose big only to show up again shortly after with bundles of suspicious cash. It's not the VIP player that's so much the, uh, the money launderer. The VIP player is a vehicle for money laundering. But Mike Hiller, a former BC Lottery Corporation investigator, told the Cullen Commission when he would raise concerns this was money laundering starting back in 2009. His superiors didn't buy in. How is that money laundering? What person would put all the money at risk and lose it all. Hiller would explain it didn't matter if VIPs lost all their cash because organized crime could collect in other ways. The higher level VIP players that were borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars were repaying it to the organization in China. 
Hiller said despite his concerns, BCLC was focused on finding alternative reasons. Why bags of suspicious cash were showing up at BC casinos, including a 2012 presentation to investigators. It was about the amount of cash that Chinese nationals were bringing in to the Vancouver airport in their luggage. Hiller argued border agency sources told him that cash was mostly in U.S. dollars. And currency exchanges don't come in bundles of small bills bound in elastics. My, my own general impression was that doesn't make sense. Hiller said he was then upset by articles posted in a BCLC internal newsletter. It was posted by our then VP, Brad Damaris. Um, I believe that article was entitled Money Laundering, Money Laundering Not Really. The opening line of that article was read out at the Cullen Commission and stated, one of the most talked about myths involving BC casinos is that money laundering is rampant. Didn't mention at all what I believe to be the greater possibility that organized crime was involved in supplying this cash. BCLC's lawyers argued work was being done at the time to improve anti-money laundering measures. Still, it's believed the problem skyrocketed to its peak in 2015, leaving British Columbia as the biggest loser of all. John Hua, Global News. A BC company has become the first in Canada to get the green light to ship commercial goods by drone. Indro Robotics has been cleared by the Canadian Transport Agency to carry packages within a distance of 25 kilometres. The company's heavy lift Wayfinder drone can ship items weighing up to 10 kilos. It has already been used to send medications and other health-related items, including a successful delivery between Duncan and Salt Spring Island. Research is underway to extend the drone's distance capacity to 200 kilometers. In Health Matters tonight, a BC safety watchdog is calling for stepped-up education about the risk from carbon monoxide. A report by Technical Safety BC reveals more than 70% of Canadians don't know what the signs of carbon monoxide buildup inside a home are. Only half check to see if their CO detectors are working, while more than a third don't know that the safety devices have an expiry date. The organization which oversees safe installation of technical equipment in the province says more public education is needed. UBC researchers are using machine learning to identify problem gamblers online. Analyzing data from more than 575 million bets placed on playnow.com, an algorithm developed by UBC's Center for Gambling Research predicted within 75% accuracy which players had a history of enrolling in BCLC's voluntary self-exclusion program to try to curb their gambling. The results show algorithms tracking the habits of online gamblers could allow responsible gaming operators to intervene before customers develop serious gambling addiction. Well, we saw Grace Key freezing at the top of Cyprus earlier in the show, and I'm betting that puffy jacket is coming in handy for Christy Gordon right now on a look at the forecast, Christy. Yes, and it has all day. I mean, it's been a very chilly day. We only got up to four degrees today, and we're back down to one degree here in North Vancouver. We're seeing snow on the British properties, higher elevations of West Vancouver, but overall, it's still just rain. Here's a look at the image that was sent to us by Brad Atchison. Now, I want to just remind you of the regions that we have the potential for snow. Um, so this is this evening. The heaviest precipitation is occurring across the region, or most widespread, I guess I should say. As we head through the overnight, it becomes 
becomes much more spotty and certainly into tomorrow. But the area in purple that you see is really just higher elevations that we have the potential. You may see some at lower elevations, but it would be slushy mess if you saw it at all. Overnight, it clears out quite quickly, but we still have a chance of a few isolated showers or flurries over higher elevations into early tomorrow morning before it all eases off. Once again, here's the areas we're concerned about. North Shore and then Northeast Metro Vancouver. Those are the areas highlighted in white. Coquitlam, Maple Ridge, uh, higher elevations of uh, Burnaby, where we're talking about 0 to 10 centimeters possible. That 10 is really for the highest elevation areas. And then all those other areas in gray, we're talking about 0 to 5, if you see it at all. Most areas are just looking at uh, rain right now, but higher elevations have the potential of seeing a bit more. We still do have a Caribou and North Thompson region under a warning, but for the most part, that's easing off. We're still expecting snowfall, though, across southern BC, and if you're driving the mountain passes, expect snow. That's up towards Whistler and anywhere east of Hope tonight and tomorrow. There's your forecast for tomorrow. So mainly through southern BC, we'll see that snowfall for our region, a chance of an isolated shower flurry in the morning. But overall, tomorrow's looking mainly dry, especially by the end of the day tomorrow with a high of six degrees. And then as we head to the weekend, we'll finally warm up a little bit. I'll leave you with your central windows weather window, which is a male mule deer there sitting out in the fall leaves and cantaloupes. Thank you to Michael for that one. Just hanging out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watching the world go by. All right. Taking a load off. Thanks, Christy. <laughs> All right, the Virgin Hyperloop has completed its first test with actual passengers. Three, two, one, launch. It happened in Nevada on Sunday. It had run more than 400 times before, but without people on board. The first passengers were Josh Geigel, co-founder and chief technology officer, and Sarah Lucian, director of passenger experience. The Hyperloop is designed to travel up to 670 miles an hour with zero direct emissions. I think in this uh, case, they only got up to about 100 miles per hour. Mm -hmm. So, but they'll go faster next time. They sure will. A demonstration of the potential Mm -hmm. of what could be in our transportation future. Waiting since April for this week. (laughs) So many people, Squire. I know. It's going to be strange. Although, listen, we dealt with hockey in the summertime, you know, basketball in the summertime. So why not the Masters in November? Incidentally, they changed the cut rules. It used to be top 50 ties, and if you were 10 shots from the lead, you could play in the weekend. Now it's just top 50 in ties. So 10 shots from the lead no longer matters. Okay. Because of the pandemic, that's why the Masters Tournament is in November rather than April when it's supposed to be played. And today, one of its former champions announced he is out of this week's event because of COVID-19. Sergio Garcia has tested positive, said he was feeling sick on Saturday, a sore throat and all that, and then on Sunday went for a test, positive. He, of course, has won the Masters before, but he won't be there this week. Another former champion who tested positive for COVID-19 is Adam Scott. Now, he caught it in October. He is feeling better now. He will be able to play this week since he is now over the virus. Coming back here this week, I've, I've since testing positive. Last week wasn't too bad. There was a lot of good stuff in there, and hope, hopefully the work that I have done and been able to do the last couple of months will accumulate and I'll be able to finish the year with a bang here uh, this week. But certainly my form hasn't been as good since, but it's been very, everything's been very inconsistent. 
Sometimes you forget Joe Flacco is a Super Bowl winning quarterback. He is quarterbacking the Jets, which almost seems like a punishment. Uh, Cam Newton to the Patriots against the Jets. Newton, who's been struggling of late, scores. That's a touchdown, 7-3 for the Patriots. But Flacco, just like he used to with the Ravens, going deep. Brashard Perryman, that's a touchdown. Look at that. Jets up 2010 at halftime. Kyle Claggett is a two-sport athlete for the University of the Fraser Valley, but the two sports he plays aren't often associated with each other. And we want to say that the footage you're about to see of Kyle was taken before further COVID restrictions were put in place. Kyle Claggett, six foot nine, University of the Fraser Valley, a power forward. When you see Kyle Claggett in that stereotypical hoops frame in action, it makes sense that Kyle's on the floor for the Cascades basketball team. Except when he first set foot on campus as a student athlete, it wasn't to shoot baskets. Golf was my main sport growing up. And then in high school, uh, basketball and golf are kind of 50-50. But I uh, decided to pursue golf after high school. Right away you could see that Kyle hit the ball a long way and he had really, really good hands around the green. He uses a really lofted club around the green, which isn't super typical and he hit some amazing shots. So he had sort of those two things that stuck out. Was one was really long distance, and then the other was uh, his really good touch around the greens with a lofted club. Now in his fourth year of university, Kyle's golf game, like his size, has grown exponentially. He's won a pair of tournaments and has also helped lead the Cascades to a couple of championships, all during a time of some serious personal growth. High school, I was only about six foot five and then grew about four inches in my first, second year at UFV. So I had to increase my club length two inches. So pretty much after my first year, uh, each year I almost added an inch and an inch. Obviously when you're growing to six foot nine and putting on, he said yesterday he was 240 pounds, you're gonna hit the ball a longer way. Kyle bombs it on average 330 yards and plays to a plus five handicap. With numbers like that, you can take a good guess who he models his game and build after. Yeah, when I, Bryson DeChambeau was kind of gaining all his weight, getting in the gym more, I put on about 15 pounds actually this summer, just working out. And now he's putting that considerable size to use on the court. Kyle last played competitive basketball in high school. That was nearly four years ago. I think you're looking at a guy who was kind of dipping his toes in the basketball world. And now he wants to dive in into the pool, into the deep end of the pool. And, and I think we're, we're welcoming that. I'm having a lot of fun last year, just kind of registering on the basketball team. But this year, getting in the full of it, kind of being one of the main guys, main pieces, especially the golf team, just being a leader this year. So it's been a great change. What's the greater love, golf or basketball? Like, where's the love affair? Uh, it's have to be 50-50, the heart split in half. So golf tee, golf's on this side, basketball's on this side. But uh, yeah. Both of them just love the game, each of them. And for the first time since 2001, when Ichiro did it, a Seattle Mariner is the American League Rookie of the Year. It is Kyle Lewis, a unanimous decision, just the 12th player in American League history, to be unanimously chosen as the top freshman. There you go. All right. Thanks, Squire. Let's check in with Jada Rant now for a look ahead to Global News at 11. J.D.? Thank you, Sophie. With a warning in effect, we are monitoring the snow situation in Metro Vancouver. We'll let you know how things could look for the morning commute.
Plus, an outbreak has been declared at another Metro Vancouver senior's home. Six people have been infected at the Langley facility. We'll have details on that tonight. Those stories and more when you join us at 11. Sophie, Chris. All right, sounds good. Thanks, Jay. And when we come back, as we approach Remembrance Day, the fascinating story of a Japanese-Canadian soldier and his contributions to this country. That's next. Well, two days ahead of Remembrance Day, and Squire has a good story to tell. Well, you see uh, memorials and statues all over this country uh, to those who fought in World War I and World War II and other conflicts as well. And they're beautiful and you see them, but sometimes you don't really think very much about them or who they represent. Tonight, we're going to show you one of the memorials in this town and who they represent or what it represents. This is the Japanese-Canadian War Memorial Monument in Stanley Park. It was built 100 years ago to commemorate the sacrifice that Japanese Canadians made for their adopted country in World War I. And it was paid for by the soldiers themselves. One of them was this man. My grandfather's full name is Sanosuke Kubota and he was a corporal for the Canadian Army. He was the son of a samurai. Uh, he was born in the late 1800s, the son of a samurai, the Satsuma warrior clan. And as a warrior, he felt his duty was to fight for Canada and encourage other Japanese Canadians to do so as well. But he could not enlist in B.C. where he lived. Uh, they would not enlist any Asians in B.C. Funnily enough, he could go to Calgary and enlist. And so he and a couple of pals did. 222 fought for Canada in places like Vimy Ridge. 54 did not come home. When those who survived, like Corporal Kubota, did get home to B.C., they had another fight to win getting Japanese Canadians the right to vote in this province. He knew that as vets that they would maybe have another chance to earn that right to vote and was quite vocal, um, you know, with the government in Victoria um, with respect to that. And so he, he really, he just didn't, you know, he wasn't going to sit and let it be. He wanted uh, that equality for the Japanese Canadians and fought pretty hard for it and yeah. won. But a couple of years after this photo was taken... These men, including Corporal Kubota, who had fought for this country, had their rights taken away from them during World War II because they were of Japanese descent. He uh, lost his house, he lost his fishing boat, and his, uh, his two sons and two daughters and wife were interred into Slokan. While in turn, Corporal Kubota kept these honor rolls on behalf of his comrades so they could be displayed with the honor they richly deserved when World War II was over. They're in mint condition, so uh, he must have, yeah, he, I think that was very important to him. Corporal Kubota and his comrades fought for Canada. They fought racism in Canada. And their triumph, along with their names, are embodied by this monument. I go by there a lot, whether it's walking, I, I like to run Stanley Park, and so I always pause as I, I run past it every single time. And I feel pretty proud that, that he's on there and that he was a big part of that. Amazing stuff. And a reminder, on Remembrance Day, we will have special live coverage of the services from the National War Memorial in Ottawa beginning at 7.30. That will be hosted by Global National's Robin Gill. And then be sure to join us from 10.30 to 11.30 for this year's ceremony at Vancouver's Victory Square. The public is being advised not to come down in person due to COVID-19. So we hope you will join us on TV.
That's on Global BC One and on on Global on BC One and online. You won't be on TV with us, but join us in front of your own TV. Just to clarify, it's the safest way to do it. (laughs) Just take all of the risk out. Stay at home. Watch us on television or online. Exactly. Uh, Okay, Uh, and good to see Brad Kubota, by the way. Hi, Brad, former uh, member of the Global BC family uh, as well. Last word on weather before we go, Christy. Sure, so snow is starting to come down in parts of Westwood Plateau, so mainly higher elevations, which was what we were expecting. Uh, Still is a slight possibility uh, across the region, but we're really talking about minimal amounts and very slushy. All right, thank you. Have a good night, all. Good night.